Journal of Bram Stoker, The Peculiarities of Ellen Crone, that is, of course, where I should start, for this is as much her story as it is mine, perhaps more so. This woman, this monster, this wraith, this friend, this being, she was always there for us. My sisters and brothers would tell you as much, but how so is where inquiry should lie. She was there at my beginning, and will no doubt be there for my end, as I was for hers. This was, and always shall be, our dance, my lovely Nana Ellen. Her hand always reaching out, even as the prick of her nails drew blood. My beginning, what a horrid affair it was. From my earliest memories, I was a sickly child, ill and bedridden from birth until my seventh year, when a cure befell me. I will speak of this cure in great length to come, but for now, it is important you understand the state in which I spent those early years. I was born 8th of November, 1847, to Abraham and Charlotte, in a modest home at 15 Merino Crescent in Clontarf Island, a small seaside town located about four miles from Dublin, bordered by a park to the east and with views of the harbor to the west. Our town gained fame as the site of the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, in which the armies of Brian Barus, the High King of Ireland, defeated the Vikings of Dublin and their allies, the Irish of Leinster. This battle is regarded as the end of the Irish Viking Wars, a bloody conflagration marked by the death of thousands upon the very shore over which my little room looked. In more recent years, Clontarf found itself the destination of Ireland's rich, a holiday setting for those wishing to escape the crowds of Dublin to enjoy fishing and strolls across our beaches. I romanticize Clontarf though, and in 1847, it was anything but romantic. This was a period of famine and disease throughout Ireland that had begun two years prior to my birth and did not find relief until 1854. Phytophthora infestans, otherwise known as potato blight, had begun ravaging crops during the 1840s and escalated into an abomination in which Ireland would lose 25% of its population to immigration or death. When I was a child, this tragedy had reached its peak. Ma and Pa moved us inland in 1849 to escape hunger, disease, and crime and the fresh air it was hoped would avail my poor health. But all it brought was further isolation. The sounds of the harbor sought by my young ears, falling more distant. For Paul, the daily walk to his office at Dublin Castle only grew 
as the world died around us, a damp web of grief lacing over all that was left. I watched all this transpire from my attic room high atop our home, known as Artane Lodge, as nothing more than a spectator relying upon the tales of my family to explain everything taking place beyond our walls. I watched the beggars as they ravaged our neighbors' gardens of turnips and cabbage, as they plucked the eggs from our chicken coop in hope of starving off hunger for one more night. I watched as they pulled clothing from the rope-strung laundry of strangers, still damp in order to dress their children. Despite all this, when they were able, my parents and neighbors opened their homes and invited these less fortunate inside for a warm meal and shelter from the storm. From my humble birth, the Stoker family motto whatever is right and honorable was instilled in me and guided all in our home. We were by no means well off, but our family fared better than most. In the fall of 1854, Pa, a civil servant, was toiling in the chief secretary's office at Dublin Castle as he had for the 39 years prior. Having begun in 1815, at only 16 years of age, Pa was substantially older than Ma, something that did not resonate with me until I was an adult. The castle was the residence of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and his office handled all correspondence between English governmental agencies and their Irish counterparts. Paul spent his time cataloging these communications, ranging, ranging from the mundane day-to-day -day business of the country to official responses on topics having to do with poverty, famine, disease, epidemics, cattle plagues, hospitals and prisons, political unrest and rebellion. If he wished to ignore the problems vexing our time, he could not. He was deep in the thick of it. Ma was an associate member of the Statistical and Social Inquiry Society of Ireland, a major force in the food drives and relief efforts of Dublin. A post previously reserved only for men, not a day would pass when she wasn't haggling with a neighbor for milk only to trade it with another neighbor for cloth. Her efforts kept food on the table for our large family and helped to feed countless others who crossed our threshold in these times of need. She held our family together, and as an adult, I see that now, but my seven-year-old self would have testified otherwise. I would have told you she locked me in my room trading my happiness for isolation from the world's ailments, not willing to allow even the slightest exposure. Our house stood off Malahide Road, a street paved with stone, extracted from the quarry near Rockfield Cottage. 
I was confined to the attic, its peaked windows my only escape. But I could see much from such a height, from the farmlands around us to the distant harbor on a clear day. Even the crumbling tower of Artane Castle. I watched the world bustle around me, a play for which I alone was the audience, my illness dictating my attendance. What ailed me, you wonder? That is a question with no real answer, for nobody was able to say for certain. Whatever it was, my affliction found me shortly after Beth birth and clung to me with wretched fingers. On my worst days, it was a feat for me to cross my room. The effort would leave me winded, bordering on unconsciousness. A mere conversation drained what little energy I possessed. After speaking but a few sentences, I often grew pale and cold to the touch. A sweat crawled from my pores, and I shivered as my moisture met the seaside air. My heart would sometimes beat fiercely in my breast, irregular, as if the organs sought rhythm and could not find it. And the headaches, they would befall me and linger day upon day, a belt tightening around my head at the leisurely hand of a fiend. I spent the days and nights in my little attic room, wondering if my last dusk had just passed, or if I would wake to see the dewy dawn. I was not entirely alone in the attic. There were two other rooms. One belonged to my sister Matilda, eight at the time, and the other was occupied by our nanny, Ellen Crone. She shared her room with baby Richard, my recently born brother and her most pressing charge. The floor below mine housed the home's only indoor privy, as well as my parents' room and a second bedroom occupied by my other two brothers, Thornley and Thomas, nine and five respectively. At the ground level could be found the kitchen, a living room, and a dining room, with a table large enough to seat the entire household. There was a basement as well. But Ma forbade me from ever descending those steps. Our coal was stored down there, and exposure to its dust could consign me to my bed for a week. Behind our house stood an old stone bar. We had three chickens and a pig there, all tended by Matilda. From the time she was three years old in the beginning, she had named the pigs. But around her fifth year, she realized someone was switching the lower sow larger sows for smaller ones at least twice a year. By her sixth year, she realized those same pigs went to the butcher and found their way onto our supper plates. She stopped naming them then. Overall, of this, Ellen Crone watched.